without any question, it is the greatest prayer ever prayed. Now, when you think about the prayers of the Word of God, there's some amazing prayers prayed. Think, if you would, of Genesis chapter 18. In Genesis chapter 18, Abraham intercedes for Sodom. And while Abraham doesn't offer himself for Sodom, for ten righteous souls, Sodom would have been spared. It is a great prayer containing the marvelous thought, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Open your Bibles to Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, there's another great prayer, this one uttered by Moses on behalf of an obstinate and wicked nation, Israel, God's people. And in this particular prayer, in Exodus 32, Moses is willing to give his life for the nation. Abraham was able to pray and for ten righteous souls, God would have spared a city. Moses intercedes for a nation. It would be wonderful if more of us interceded for our cities and our nation. But in John chapter 17, Jesus intercedes for the world. And not only does he intercede, he gives his life for the world. It's the greatest prayer ever prayed hands down. We began looking at this prayer in John 17 last Sunday morning. In that particular lesson, I talked about how that this was the greatest prayer ever prayed, first of all, because of the one who prayed it, Jesus. Think about that. We are privy to a divine conversation. God the Son is speaking to God the Father. And we think of Jesus as being the most perfect person who ever lived, the most perfect preacher who ever preached, but he was also the most most wonderful prayer who ever prayed. And there's so much that can be learned from him from each of these areas. Because you see, it's not just God the Son who's speaking to God the Father. That's fascinating enough. It is God-man speaking to the Heavenly Father. And for those of us who are Christians, because of who Jesus was and what Jesus did, when you and I approach God in prayer, we can cry, Abba, Father. Galatians 4 and verse 6. 
Yes, this is the greatest prayer ever prayed because of who prayed it. This is the greatest prayer ever prayed because of the occasion. John 17 has Jesus only a very few hours from being betrayed, taken by a mob to be tried and sentenced and crucified on a cross by 9 o'clock the next morning. Sometimes words are extra special because of the timing of them. That's true with this prayer. Third, this is the greatest prayer ever prayed due to the request being made. If you'll look at John 17, and you may well recall this from last Sunday. The first five verses, Jesus prays for himself. There is nothing selfish at all about beginning that way. Because only by praying for himself and that God glorify him in what he was going to do could you and I be saved and enjoy eternal glory with our God. In verses 6 through 19... Jesus prays for his disciples, for his followers. What a prayer. It's the greatest prayer ever prayed because of its request. And he prays in verses 6 through 19 that God keep his disciples safe and secure and that he keep his followers sanctified and holy. Now look at verses 20 through 26 because the third major part, request area of the prayer of Jesus in this greatest prayer ever prayed. He prays for the world and especially the people of God, the church. He prays for himself, he prays for his followers, the apostles, and he prays for the world and especially the church. You and I are on really solid ground when our prayers are characterized by the glory of God. That's really what Jesus is stressing in the opening five verses of John 17. Our praying will conform more to the prayers of the greatest prayer ever to pray when we pray for the security and safety of God's people. When we pray for the sanctity and the holiness of God's people. Third, when we fourth pray and our prayers are characterized by the unity that's to be found in Christ. And should be displayed by God's people. And then lastly, we pray a lot more in common with the praying of Jesus when we pray with a view toward eternity. Verses 22 through 26 of John 17 are really about the love and the fellowship and the association that we can have with God and His Son forever in eternity. Jesus really had His act together in every way. 
And the only proper response is amazement. I mentioned just in passing last Sunday that this is part of the farewell discourse. John 14 through 17 is commonly called the farewell discourse. Jesus is speaking to them. Jesus is praying. You've got instruction, the word given in John 14, 15, and 16. And you have Jesus praying about everything that he's instructed them concerning in Chapters four, uh, in chapters 14, 15, and 16, there in, verse, in chapter 17. He's praying about these things. We need to better balance the Word of God and prayer. Acts 6, verses 3 and 4. Take just a minute and turn to John 16, 33. It is the last verse of John chapter 16, and it opens the way, it opens the door to John 17 and this greatest prayer ever prayed. These things I have spoken to you, Jesus says, that in me you might have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, take heart, the English Standard Version says. I have overcome the world. Take a look at John 16, 33, because what you have, first of all, to observe is a twofold life. A twofold life. If we are going to be God's people, we must be in Him, in me, in Christ. See it? But we are not with Him in glory yet. We are in the world. Do you see the passage? That's why you and I often struggle. We struggle with being in the world and in Christ and a twofold life. But everything about being in the world must be observed and seen because we are first and foremost in Him. Second observation. Two experiences. We live in Christ and in the world, but the experiences are peace in me, Jesus says, and tribulation in the world. You see it? Don't tell me the Bible doesn't relate to people. Anybody here know a thing or two about tribulation, difficulty, heartache, anguish? Think the folks sitting over here to my left with the seat missing that Miss Bernice would normally be sitting in, they don't know a thing about anguish and heartache and tribulation. We all do, don't we? And then it is contrasted with peace in Christ. And that's why Roger and Tammy and the rest of the family can smile. In me, peace. In Christ, peace. And you know what? Life is full of that. 
It is full of tribulation, but it can be full of the Lord's peace too if we belong to Him. And if that's a struggle for you sometimes as a Christian, join the club. But I want to know God's peace more in my life as I go through this life full of tribulation. Don't you? Don't you? Now notice two attitudes. Two lives in the Lord and in the world. Two experiences, peace and tribulation. Two attitudes. Take heart. I marvel that Jesus said a few hours before he would go to the cross, he told his followers to take heart. And then he says, I have overcome the world. If there is any attitude that should characterize the people of God, it would be hard to improve on the words of Jesus himself in John 16.33. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world, 1 John 4 and verse 4. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us, Romans 8, 31. Now here's what I want you to see with me. Just quickly, we're going to work through a few things. I want to deal with lessons we can learn from the greatest prayer ever prayed. Lessons we can learn... Lesson number one. Lesson number one is about the pricelessness of prayer. The pricelessness of prayer. Men ought always to pray and faint not. Luke 18.1 We are to be fervent in prayer. Romans 12.11 Continue with all in prayer. Colossians 4 and verse 2. The disciples of Jesus were so interested in the prayer life of Jesus, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. Luke 11 and verse 1. And here in John 17, we have the most exhaustive Prayer of Jesus that's recorded in the New Testament. Don't you think, practically speaking, that warrants our study, our meditation, our thought, and it ought to influence our own view of prayer, the pricelessness of prayer. If the Son of God, who was perfect in every way, takes an entire chapter in a book that is dealing with the moments just prior to his arrest and betrayal and sentencing and crucifixion, if he does this, do I value prayer like that? Because if the Son of God felt the need to so go to his Father, how much more should those of us who are only human... Only human. 
And then I think of Hebrews 4.16 that we can come boldly to the throne of His grace that we might find mercy to help and grace in time of need. The pricelessness of prayer. It's so practical for those of us like myself who preach, a lot of time goes into sermon preparation, but not so much often goes into sermon prayer preparation. Teachers who teach Bible classes can prepare their lessons, but have they prepared by praying too? Our evangelistic endeavors will amount to little without great prayer behind them. When I was a young person, I remember that the church often had prayer meetings. Maybe there's a greater place and need for prayer meetings so that the will of God can be done and the church can be healthy and strong and growing. Secondly, in looking at this particular prayer. The lesson to be learned is about the glory of God. The glory of God. It's not unusual to hear people talk about the threefold mission of the church. And I appreciate so very much how true that that these missionary aspects are to what we're to be about as God's people. The threefold mission of the church is what? Teach the lost, strengthen the saved, and help the hurting. Everybody heard that before? Raise your hand if you have. The threefold mission of God's people is to evangelize the lost, strengthen the saved, and help those that are in need or hurting. Those are noble goals. But that's not our ultimate goal. It's not our ultimate mission. It's part of it. But more broadly speaking, our goal, our purpose, is to glorify and honor God. Listen to me. Praise and worship, do you hear me? Praise and worship are the only mission that's going to continue throughout eternity. The time comes when there will not be a discussion of saving the lost as important as it is in the world right now. But we won't do it over there. It won't be necessary. Strengthening the saved, a lot of my work in ministry is about preaching to the lost and trying to encourage and help the saved. It won't be necessary over there. And a lot of what the church needs to do and ought to do here on earth, helping those that are hurting, won't be done over there because God will wipe away all tears. Hard to beat that kind of comfort. Amen. What I am saying is this. The mission of the church has got to be looked at through the overall lens 
of praising and glorifying God. And if it is not, something really precious is missing. What do you mean by the glory of God? I'm glad you asked, even though I asked it. The glory of God is what we would call a summary statement. Because it has to do with all that God is and does. His beauty, His character, it's radiant and weighty uh, and, 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 and crucial and beautiful, like I said, glorious. May that ever be what we keep in mind as we reach the lost and and seek to strengthen the saved and help the hurting and the poor. Lesson three. Lesson number three. The necessity of the cross. This prayer teaches the necessity of the cross yet again. Look at your copy of God's Word. Notice just the first five verses, John 17, 1 through 5. And if you mark in your Bible, you might want to do this. Every time you see the word give or send or sent, circle it. Five times. Jesus is the sent one. The one who has been given for us. The eternal purpose of God in Christ. Ephesians 3, 9 through 11. The one who was foreknown before the foundation of the world but manifest in these last times for our sake. 1 Peter 1 and verse 20. Notice how this very prayer will begin. How it is introduced. What Jesus says in John 17 and verse 1 is, The hour has what? Jesus lived on a divine timetable. The necessity of the cross. When Jesus performed his first miracle at Cana of Galilee in John chapter 2 and verse 4, before he does the miracle of turning the water into wine, he says, My hour has not yet come. He will say it on a number of occasions. John 7 and verse 6. John 7 verse 8. John 8 verse 20. My hour is not come. What do you mean by that, Jesus? Well, open your Bibles to John chapter 12. Because John 12 is the hinge passage. My hour has not come. He's preaching He's teaching, he's strengthening, he's helping the poor and the hurting. 
And in John 12, notice verse 23 and verse 27. Because things change a little bit about his hour. Do you see that in the passage? Brother Terry, if you're there, if you don't mind, please stand and read verse 23 and verse 27 and 28. I sure appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much and catch it because this identifies the hour for us as the time Jesus would be going to the cross. His purpose in coming in glorifying the Father and in being glorified Himself by humanity Is seen in the cross. Then in John 13 and verse 1, his hour had fully come. You see it? John 17, 1, his hour had fully come. There are no surprises. There are There are no things happening in a haphazard manner. The purpose for which Jesus came is being seen. Now, have you ever stopped to think about this? Go back and look at John 17. Look at verse 4. I have finished the work that you've given me to do. I have glorified you on the earth. Let me ask you this question. Jesus only had a three-year-long earthly ministry approximately. Isn't that right? By any standard, that's short. Weren't there more sermons to preach? Didn't more instruction need to be given to the apostles? Could it have been? Brother Bill, you reckon there were more people to heal? And yet it says, I have finished the work you gave me to do. Because finishing the work is all about glorifying and praising God. And in the case of Jesus, it involves the hour, as he calls it, of going to the cross. If ever there was someone that understood what Paul meant by this one thing I do, it was Jesus. Next. Look at verse 8. And I love this section. Verses 6 through 19 as Jesus prays for the apostles, for his disciples. It's the most lengthy portion of this prayer. You know, Jesus was fully aware of how much help his followers were going to need to get through the next few days especially. 
Hey, Roger, you reckon that the Lord knows exactly how much help you're going to need to get through the next few days? You think that that's true of you and me, too? And he's interceding for us, too. The picture's different, not just the Lord praying as God-man on earth to the Father up above, but now he is praying at the right hand of God and talking to his Father. And Adam, he's talking for you and me. And he's talking for you and me, Thomas. And for you and me. There's something extra precious about knowing that someone who is a far greater intercessor than Abraham or Moses is interceding for us. Notice verse 8. This whole section, verses 6 through 19, if you mark in your Bibles, you can mark it as discipleship, although the word is not found there technically. Disciple is a word found 264 times in the Gospels and the book of Acts, but not once in the epistles. It is a very common name for the followers of Jesus. Is what a disciple is, a follower, an understudy, but not found outside of the Gospel accounts and Acts. Fascinating. Doesn't mean we're not supposed to follow Jesus. But look at verse 8 of chapter 17. Verse 8. And mark these words. What does a disciple look like? I have given the words, I have given them the words that you gave me. That was true with Jesus and the apostles, but may I suggest that it's also true of us too? God has given us the words that the Son had received from the Father. Notice secondly, they received them. Third, they have come to know in truth that Jesus came from God. And fourth, they believed that you sent me. I can't think of a greater definition of what it means to be a disciple. Let's move on to the last portion of that prayer, verses 20 through 26. 20 and 21 are especially about unity. And notice the unity that we are to exhibit is based on the word of the apostles, first of all. Any unity must greatly love and respect the word given by God, the Holy Spirit, through the apostles. Or it's not true unity at all. Here's something else to make each and every one of us think. A unity, Jesus prayed, 
even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That's a pretty tall order, isn't it? Especially when you're dealing with frail people of various maturity levels and personality types here in this old world of tribulation. We must so love Jesus and his gospel that we do not draw a line unless it is a line that is drawn by Jesus and the gospel. Many churches are in sad shape because of inner turmoil, personality, conflict, and division. Yes, there are churches that are certainly hurting because of doctrinal error. But I suspect as many or more are hurt due to pride and power struggles and personality conflict. Let us resolve at Westside that we will be bigger people than that. Amen. I recall a number of years ago studying, trying to study with a person who was not a Christian. And for whatever reason, there was a roadblock that kept occurring again and again, and the individual would not mention it to me. And finally, I found out that this individual worked with a number of members of the congregation where I preached at the time. And what they said in his presence about congregational problems made him think, I've already got enough problems. Why would I want to be part of a group of people that has even more? Can we not be bigger people than that? Don't we need to be bigger people than that for the sake of Jesus? Please be careful about what you say concerning the bride of Jesus. I don't want to say anything about the church that I will regret when I stand before the Lord. Do you? And I'm speaking on a congregational level just as much. I realize the church is comprised of imperfect people. Most of all, the one who often gets in this pulpit. But the church needs to work within and not air grievances out in the world, but be salt and light. Lastly, what a lesson, what a prayer. This prayer emphasizes eternity. And when you look especially at verses 22 through 26, it speaks of our enjoying the love of the Godhead and the presence of Father and Son in spirit and being able to be with them forever. Jesus prayed this prayer for a number of reasons, but he prayed this prayer so that the world might know 
you have sent me. This is a prayer for the world given by the Savior of the world so that the world through him might be saved. By John 17, you can jot this down. John 3.16 For God, the Father, John 17.1 The Holy Father, John 17.11 the, the Righteous Father, John 17.25 So loved the world. Jesus is praying for the world that He gave His only begotten Son that He sent, He gave His Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Eternity. It's amazing to me how what comes on very early in John is still kept at the forefront in the shadow of the cross. I believe we'd be awfully wise people to do the same. To keep at the forefront what Jesus did. If you're not a Christian through faith and repentance and baptism, come to Jesus today and please don't delay. He was sent and given for you. Are you going to say no thank you to that kind of offering and gift? You can have your sins forgiven and be added to the body of Christ. For those of us who are Christians... Standing for what is truth is not optional. It is an obligation. But it is an obligation out of devotion. We love Him. And so we don't take it lightly when His Word is not loved and respected. But even then, be patient. I thought it was interesting. Just not long ago you talked about a lot, Adam, in a setting about the importance of patience. Let's be patient with others without compromising the truth because God has been mighty patient with us, has He not? Amen? Let us stand and sing.